For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The Temple of God, part two, Revelation chapter 11, verses one through six. You guys could bump me down just a shade. It seems a little heavy to me, hot. So um, Revelation chapter 11, verses one through six. So in our ongoing study now of Revelation, we are in the process, if you will, of considering an interlude that lies within the cycle of trumpets, okay? The visions given to John are following a distinctive pattern. There are seven literary cycles, and those seven literary cycles recapitulate, or they parallel essentially the same period of time. And as we move through those literary cycles, we also see a progressive parallelism in what's being communicated. Each cycle pressing up us, if you will, with increasing intensity against the events that comprise the end of the age. Progressive parallelism, um, progressively pressing us against, if you will, those events that comprise the end of the age. And in each cycle, that cycle primarily revealing the judgments of God poured out upon unbelieving earth dwellers, we're also given in each of those cycles an interlude, if you will, a literary parenthesis in which we see a vision of the church. We saw the church militant on earth. We saw the church triumphant in heaven between the sixth and the seventh seals in that interlude or in that literary parenthesis. And now in Revelation chapter 11, we see the church in her work during this age as a persevering witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that picture of the church in this parenthesis that lies between the blast of the sixth and the seventh trumpets. In this literary interlude, if you will, we get a vision of the church. Now, it's a vision that's given to John for the purpose of encouraging the church. And here it's to encourage the church in her work as a persevering witness, as a light that shines in a dark place. The church needs encouragement in her witness. The Lord knows what she needs, and the Lord supplies that encouragement. We too, like John, we too have been given a stewardship from God. We've been commissioned, as it were. We've been given a great commission as witnesses to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What, what are our mar- marching orders here? Our marching orders are to be a witness in this perverse generation, a witness in this dark place for the light of the gospel. We are to be witnesses of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our job, folks. That's the great commission, right? We're here as witnesses to the gospel. And as that progressive parallelism through those cycles, as it were, as that parallelism presses us up against the end of the age, in the words of Peter, we are to look to or look for and hasten the coming of the day of God. In the words of Paul, we are to live godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to preach the gospel and we're to look ahead, as it were, to the horizon for the coming of our Lord. We're to be encouraged by his promised return. And as that blessed hope of the church fills our sight, as it were, of the horizon of redemptive history, it should encourage us in our day to persevere in faith, to overcome. We're given this revelation of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ to encourage the church in her witness, 
to encourage the church as she perseveres, as she endures through this time until the Lord returns. It should encourage us. We're to follow the Lord, the Lord's example, who said himself, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We're to follow his example. We're to walk in the footsteps of our Lord. We are to suffer. We're to join in to his suffering. We're to join in, as it were, in his afflictions. We're to fill up what is lacking in his afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. And we are to persevere during this time of the end. So as we come to Revelation 11 then, this is a vision meant to encourage the church. The judgments of God decreed for the wicked are being poured out. The wrath of God is presently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Demon hordes have been unleashed, wreaking havoc upon the earth. The devil prowls, seeking whom he may devour. And the church of our Lord Jesus Christ bears witness. Bears witness as a light shining in a dark place, bears witness to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And using Old Testament and New Testament language then that has reference to the church, the church is initially depicted here in Revelation chapter 11 as the temple of God in verse 1. And again, it's using typological language. It's using language from the Old Testament. It's using that language language as interpreted by the, the apostles in the New Testament for the new, te- temp- the new covenant temple of God, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Living stones being built up, as it were, into a holy house, a holy sanctuary for God by the Spirit. In our last look at this text together, John, acting as God's eschatological prophet, is given a symbolic task. Like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, like other Old Testament prophets before him, John is to act out a living parable that has spiritual significance, okay? In this case, John, in verse 1, has been given a reed like a measuring rod, and John has been commanded to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. This has spiritual significance. That command given to God's eschatological prophet links our text in Revelation chapter 11 to the very same command given to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. It links God's eschatological prophet John to that Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. And we're to see a connection there between those two texts. In other words, the vision that the Lord gives to John, in the vision that he gives to us through that, we are to see and we are to understand a thread that is drawn between those two texts. We're to see this connecting thread between those two texts. The context, in the context of Ezekiel's prophecy, as we saw, is the promise of God to the remnant who were coming back from their exile in Babylon. It was God's promise to the remnant of his his people who were exiled in Babylon, and God promised them while they were in their exile that he would draw, restore his people from the four corners of the earth, and that he would rebuild the temple. And that temple, God's promise to rebuild the temple, signifies God's presence among his people. In other words, the rebuilding of that temple signified to those people in exile that God would once again restore them to himself and would dwell in their midst. It was a gracious promise of God's mercy to an exiled people. Now, in the, in the buildup to Ezekiel, measuring the temple, God says in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 26, he says this, 
I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Now think about where the people were. They're in exile in Babylon. They've been cast out of the land. They've been exiled. And the temple has been destroyed. The temple had been raised to the ground. And God says to the exiles in Babylon, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. That's a gracious promise, isn't it? My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. We see that promise repeated on the lips of the apostles in the New Testament, don't we? Of God dwelling in our midst, he will be amongst his people. I will be their God, they will be my people. That's a promise of God's renewed presence in the midst of his people. That's a promise that God would restore them to himself and that the temple would be rebuilt. What temple are we talking about, right? The Lord is clear in the New Testament. The temple is the people of God, the church. We're going to talk about that more as we go through the text. The nations, the Lord says, the nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. I want you to think about that with respect to the New, Covenant, the New Testament's context, all right? Revelation chapter 21 says of the heavenly Jerusalem that descends out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. Who's that talking about? It's talking about the bride of Christ, the people of God, the church. It says of that heavenly Jerusalem that descends out of heaven, that that heavenly Jerusalem has no temple in it. Why? It says there, because God and the lamb are its temple. In other words, what is the promise of a restored temple? What is the nature of that promise? The nature of that gracious promise is God's presence among his people. That was pictured typologically in the brick and mortar temple of the Old Testament. That first temple, right? The Solomon built, that second temple built by Herod. It was signifying God's presence among his people. When Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ said, I am the temple. He's the true temple. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the presence of God in the midst of his people. Now, brothers and sisters, John 14, the Lord says, I'll not leave you orphans. I'm going to come to you. My father, the Lord Jesus promises, my father and I will make our abode with you. How does he do that? He does that through his spirit, by his spirit, the spirit of God indwelling his people. So now, who are the temple? <laughs> the people of God are the temple. They are a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And so that's why the apostles speak of us, brothers and sisters, as being built up into a holy temple, offer, offering up the sacrifice of the praise of our lips, giving thanksgiving to his name. That's the way that we're described. We are the temple of God. When God promises to rebuild the temple, what is he promising? He is promising his gracious, merciful presence in the midst of his people. He is the temple, so to speak. The Lord Jesus Christ is the temple of the living God. This promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That promise of a restored, rebuilt temple to the exiles in Babylon, as they're sitting in exile, knowing that their temple in Jerusalem has been raised to the ground, that gracious promise would have been the joy and rejoicing in their heart that would have filled them with joy, filled them with hope. And we see the same promise repeated in the Old Testament, repeated to Haggai, repeated to Zechariah. We looked at some of those texts last time. We see that pro prophecy fulfilled in a spectacular way on this side of the cross under the new covenant. 
No longer would a brick and mortar building signify the presence of God among his people. His very gracious presence would exist among us. And brothers and sisters, we have access through Jesus Christ into the most holy place behind the veil where the presence of God is said to dwell. Jesus says of the triune God, we will come to the believer and make our home with him. It's amazing, isn't it? Awesome thought. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says to the church, for you are the temple. And that's that word naos, which means it's speaking of the holy place. You are the holy place, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. You are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And ultimately, Revelation 21 John says of the new Jerusalem, I saw no temple in it. He didn't see a brick and mortar building. Why? John says, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We need to grasp that understanding, grasp that vision of God's glory. Amen. God's presence in the midst of his people. So what then, that brings up the question, doesn't it, from Revelation 11. What then is John measuring in Revelation chapter 11? Think with me now. What is he measuring? He's given a reed, a measuring rod, and told, measure the temple, the naos, the holy place, measure the altar, and measure the people who worship there. John is giving a, given a vision. Brothers and sisters, we need to see that vision as typological. What did the temple, the brick-and-mortar temple in Old Testament temple Judaism, what did it signify? It signified the presence of God in the midst of his people. When John now gets this vision of a temple, and he's given a measuring read and told to measure the temple, what does that temple signify? That temple signifies God's presence in the midst of his people. And we have to understand, again, who is referred to as the temple under the new covenant. It is the people of God. The heavenly Jerusalem that descends out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband, is the dwelling place of God. The presence of God is in it, so to speak. There is no need for a brick and mortar building because God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Do you see the connections? So when John is told to measure the temple in Revelation chapter 11, he's measuring an Old Testament picture. And it's an Old Testament picture that we're to see fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're to see fulfilled in the presence of God in the midst of his people. It's an Old Testament symbol that is fulfilled in the church. What is John measuring? In a sense, he's drawing out a boundary around those people that belong to God. He's measuring, as it were, the church. Elect Jew, elect Gentile, the dwelling place of God by his spirit. What does John ultimately see? What is the Lord ultimately showing us in this rich symbolism that comes out of the Old Testament. He's showing us the church. That John sees, as it were, the new covenant temple filled with new covenant priests. And those new covenant priests and that new covenant temple are conducting the service of the new covenant temple, right? Continually offering the sacrifices of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. It's the church, do you see? However, it's interesting from Revelation chapter 11, John isn't merely commanded to simply measure the temple. Interestingly, John is also told to measure those who worship there. More literally from the text, John is told to measure those who worship in it. They're in it. Now think with me now. 
What is the significance of measuring then in verse one? What is the significance of measuring? The significance of measuring the temple has to do with the fulfillment of God's promise of rebuilding a more glorious temple than those which came before. It's a way of communicating the greatness and the glory of that temple in comparison with all that came before. Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, again, that prophecy of Haggai to the exiles who were in Babylon, God says to the exiles, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. So think with me for a moment. If you remember that that depiction of the exiles coming back from Babylon, it's given to us in Ezra chapter 3, for example. Exiles are coming back from Babylon in Ezra chapter 3. They're laying the foundation of the temple. Those who were in Jerusalem, when that older temple was there, when they saw the foundation of the new temple being laid, what did they do? They wept. They wept because they, they saw the foundation being laid, and they surmised that the glory of that temple that was being built at their return was not as grand as the temple who came, that came before, and it wasn't a fulfillment of God's promise of this particular temple. They wept. The new generation coming back from Babylon, those who had been born in Babylon, now returning to Jerusalem, they rejoiced. You heard their rejoicing from afar off because the temple is being built. Again, what is that a picture of? That's the knowledge, their knowledge of God's prophecy, God's promise of a rebuilt temple where God says through the prophet Haggai to those people, the the temple that I'm promising you will be more glorious than the temple which came before. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. But what is the significance then of measuring those who worship in it? The purpose of measuring them, as it were, is to mark out, to mark out, if you will, those who belong to the new covenant temple. Think of it this way. It's not unlike the sealing of God's people that took place in the interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal. God sealed those who were his on their foreheads. He marked them off as it were, as his own people. God's people identified, marked out by God's mark upon, God's seal upon their foreheads. They are identified in that way. They're consecrated to him in that way. They're marked off, numbered among his people. They're measured. They're measured out as one might measure a property that belongs to him. (laughs) They're bounded They're encompassed. He sets a boundary around them because he cares for them. They belong to him. He measures it, as it were, because he cares for it. And those who are singled out, not a single one of them is lost. What's the effect? What's the the intention? What is communicated through the measuring? They are mine, and not one of them is lost. I set a boundary around them. I'm exacting Not one of them is lost except that son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Amen? Not one of them lost, but every one of them raised up at the last day. God measures out his people. God measures out the new covenant temple and all that belongs to him. Those who belong to the chief cornerstone, those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord essentially says, this temple belongs to me. This glorious building is my doing. The individual people who worship in it as a part of that temple They belong to me. They are my doing. We are the Lord's, amen. Think with me about some parallels. When when David, for example, 
defeated the Moabites in 2 Samuel chapter 8. The Bible says that David forced them to the ground and measured them off with a line. In conquering those people, David forces them to the ground and then he measures them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. With one full line, he measured off those who would be kept alive to pay tribute. The language that is used here in Revelation chapter 11, that same language used in 2 Samuel 8, the language signifies marking off a people, marking off a people, setting a boundary around them, particularly in the case of David, making a judgment between those who would live and those who would die. In measuring off a people to himself, God makes a discriminating judgment. In Revelation chapter 11, when John is told to measure the temple and measure those who worship in it, God is making a discriminating judgment in Revelation verse, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. John is told in verse 1, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Measure those people. But, verse 2, he's making a discriminating judgment. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, that court which is outside the naos, the holy place, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. In other words, God says, here lies the boundary of my temple. Here lies the boundary of my new covenant people. Distinguish, God distinguishes between those who are his and those who are not, those who are on the inside, as it were, and those who are on the outside. So the idea of measuring also carries this sense of precision, exactness, making a discriminating judgment. The Lord is precise in his judgments, and the Lord is strict in calling men to account. In Amos chapter 7, turn there with me quickly, Amos chapter 7. In Amos chapter 7, the prophet Amos is given a vision of God standing atop a wall with a plumb line in his hand. God stands over Israel, as it were, over the wall of his sanctuary. Israel described as a wall around his sanctuary. And God is going, with a plumb line in his hand, God is going to measure the wall, so to speak. He measures them by the plumb line to see what is crooked and what is out of place. So in Amos chapter 7, verse 8, Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. In other words, it's time for judgment. God is going to make a discriminating judgment in Israel. And he's going to do so by this symbolic figure, this symbolic act of standing on the wall with a plumb line. He says, verse 9, The high places of Isaac shall be desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. In other words, God, with the plumb line in his hand, is making a judgment between spaces in the wall that are straight and places in the wall that are not straight, places in the wall that are crooked. And God is going to take out those crooked places and maintain the straight. Jeroboam, shall die by the sword. Israel shall go away captive, and God will save a remnant. Right? We see God with a plumb line in his hand, 
measuring off his people, putting a boundary around those who are his, making a discriminating judgment about those who are on the outside, so to speak. So in Revelation 11, John is told to measure off the people, measure off the people to God. Those inside the boundary, so to speak, those who worship in the temple that God has marked off for himself, and in measuring off those who worship there, John is drawing a line, as it were, between them and those unbelieving earth dwellers on the outside. That court on the outside has been given over to be trampled by the Gentiles. That word there is ethnos. It means the nations. So that outer area of the temple has been given over to be trampled by the nations. Before the complete destruction of the Jerusalem temple, there was an outer court that was the court of the Gentiles. We talked about that briefly this morning. That court of the Gentiles was separated from the Jewish courts by a small wall, a knee wall, if you will. And it's referred to, that small wall is referred to in Ephesians chapter 2 as the middle wall of separation. So if you can picture the, the temple complex, the, the most holy place, the naos in the center, and these various courts, the courts of the men, the courts of the women, the courts of the Gentiles. Between the courts of the women and the courts of the Gentiles, there was a small knee wall that separated the courts of the Jews from the courts of the Gentiles. For a Gentile to cross that dividing line meant immediate death. There were archaeological finds. They found inscripted signs that were associated with that little knee wall that pronounced death on any Gentile that crossed that wall. Now, what, we, what used to separate ethnic or proselyte Jews from Gentiles, now in Revelation 11, is seen as dividing those who place their faith in Jesus Christ from those who do not. In other words, the middle wall of separation between elect Jew and elect Gentile has essentially been torn down in Jesus Christ. That's the message of Ephesians chapter 2. And the two have become one. Now, that dividing wall, as it, as it were, that middle wall of separation is between those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and those who do not. It's between the most holy place, the naos in the temple and the outer court of the Gentiles that's been turned over to the nations. There's a dividing line between those who place their faith and trust in Jesus and those who do not. The Gentiles in verse two signify the nations, signifying those unbelieving earth dwellers who do not belong to the people of God. And a judgment here is made by God between believers and unbelievers. He measures his people off to himself. He makes a judgment in their favor, do the work of his son on their behalf, and he distinguishes between them, true Israel, made up of elect Jew and elect Gentiles, those of the circumcision made without hands, those are the ones who are worshiping the Lord their God within the naos, and he makes a distinction between them and the nations. Now, what about those then in verse 2 who are not within that boundary of the naos, the temple? What about them? Verse 2, the Lord says, but leave out. Literally there, that word is ekbalo. It means to throw out, cast from you, throw out, throw out the court, which is outside the temple, cast it away from you as it were. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. God makes a judgment. God makes, makes a distinction 
reject those who do not worship in the naos, in the temple. Throw them out, as it were. What's interesting, when you think about this distinction, this distinction that's being made here, is that the outer court of the Gentiles is in fact associated with the temple service. The Gentiles would worship there in the outer court of the Gentiles. It's associated with the worship that took place in the temple. This was the place in the first century, if you remember the, the, the account in the New Testament, this was the place in the first century where the money changers set up their wares, where they perverted and corrupted the true worship of God. When Jesus Christ cleansed the temple, he went in there into that court and he overturned their tables. He drove them out of the court of the Gentiles. They were in that court, they were profaning the worship of God. And the Gentiles worshiping there did not have access into the inner courts where the presence of God is said to dwell. They didn't have access past that middle wall of separation. What has happened, brothers and sisters, is that that middle wall of separation has been torn down by the Lord Jesus Christ, and now the Gentiles are flooding into the naos because of the bloodshed of the Lord Jesus Christ for a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. They're flooding in because of Jesus Christ. But this outer court was associated with that temple worship. They were profaning the worship of God there. And brothers and sisters, this would describe, if you will, much of the so-called worship of the modern professing church. I think this is a picture of the apostate church. It's a picture of that profane worship that takes place outside the naos, outside the most holy place, by those who profess to worship God. They're in the court on the Temple Mount, but it's a court outside the most holy place. God says it's been turned over the to the nations for them to trample it underfoot for 42 months. Notice also in verse 2, that outer court has been given to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will tread or trample the holy city underfoot. That's what that word means. They'll trample it underfoot. Now in verse 2, we refer to that language there as a divine passive, a divine passive. You have to ask the question, who has given it to them to trample it underfoot? God has. God has turned it over to them. God has made a distinction between those who are his, those who worship in the naos, and those who do not. God has made a distinction between them, and he's going to judge those who are on the outside. And they trample his courts, as it were, filling up the full measure of their guilt until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to judge. God has given it to them. There is a distinction being made. There is a plumb line in the hand of the master builder. That line is being drawn. It's a line in the sand, if you will. People are being measured with two lines. He measured off those to be put to death. With one full line, he measured off those who would be kept alive to pay tribute. Now notice first, they are trampling the holy city underfoot. The holy city, this is a reference to Jerusalem. Notice the description of the holy city in verse 8. Regarding the two witnesses in verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Where was the Lord crucified? The Lord was crucified in Jerusalem. What city is he speaking of when he references the holy city? There in verse 2, he's referencing Jerusalem. At this point in redemptive history, Jerusalem is not what it will be. Right? There will be a heavenly Jerusalem that will descend from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. 
There will be a new heavens and a new earth. But at this point in redemptive history, Jerusalem is not what God promises that it will be. The true worshipers, worshipers of God are not there. They're worshiping God in the naos. This has been uh, given over to the Gentiles, as it were, to trample underfoot. Apostate and unbelieving Israel is there. That's Galatians chapter 4. Much of the contemporary church is there. We see that in our own day. Galatians chapter 4, verse 25. This Jerusalem is in bondage. Paul describes the Jerusalem that now is, Galatians chapter 4, verse 25, as in bondage. He describes the Jerusalem, which now is, as filled with Ishmaelites, a city associated with the abominations of Sodom, a city identified with the slavery of Egypt, a city that killed the Lord of glory. They crucified the Lord there. It is trampled underfoot by those who have profaned the worship of God. They have taken the name of God on their lips, but they have taken his name in vain. Do you see? Christians, as it were, in name only. Those who are on the broad road to destruction. And like Sodom, like Egypt, it lies under the judgment of God. How are we to view the Jerusalem which now is? I suggest to you, submit to you, that we are to view the Jerusalem that now is like Paul views it in Galatians chapter 4. We have the word of God that testifies of these things. Like Sodom, like Egypt, it lies under the judgment of God. It is the place where his plagues are being poured out. It is the place, notice now, that is being tread underfoot by Gentile nations. Says they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. That language of trampling or treading underfoot, that's the language of a military defeat. A military defeat. God, it says in the Old Testament that God tramples the Assyrians underfoot. He treads down his enemies. Zechariah 10 describes the Lord as a mighty man who treads down his enemies in the mire of the streets. To trample them underfoot speaks of a defeat, military defeat. Ultimately, this is the same vision given to the prophet Daniel. Turn back with me to Daniel chapter 8. I want to consider this from Daniel chapter 8. I think this will be helpful to you. Daniel chapter 8. And look there beginning at verse 8. Again, in Daniel, there are these typological kingdoms, right? The kingdom of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Medo-Persia, this kingdom of Greece and the kingdom of Rome, all of these kingdoms exemplified or described in great detail in the prophecy of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 8, we see this kingdom represented by the male goat. Now, we know from studying Daniel that this male goat represents the kingdom of Greece. But Greece, this kingdom, is typological of the others also and typological of that kingdom which will be in place at the end. I want you to see that as we work through the text. Daniel chapter 8, verse 8. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the, the large horn was broken, Alexander the Great. The large horn was broken, and in its place, in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. In other words, there were four generals who inherited the kingdom, as it were, when Alexander the Great was cast down, when Alexander the Great died. And those four generals took four portions of the kingdom to the four corners of the earth. 
And verse nine, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, toward Israel. Verse 10, and it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. What is that prophecy referring to? Um, we'll go through Daniel again at some point here soon. But speaking of God's people, and this wicked one, this abomination, trampling underfoot the people of God. Verse 11, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host as high as the Lord Jesus Christ. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and he prospered. Verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host and the people to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, verse 14, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary, sanctuary shall be cleansed. Notice this trampling underfoot involves the persecution of God's people. Involves not only the destruction of the city, but the persecution, the martyrdom of God's people. That time period, 2,300 days, literally, it's referring to 2,300 mornings and evenings. Mornings and evenings. So you take that and each morning and each evening signifying together one day. That's about the, the amount of time that was involved in this particular instance in redemptive history of what takes place here before the the sanctuary is sanctified again. Look at Daniel chapter 12. Let's consider this again from Daniel 12. These things are connected. Daniel chapter 12. Look there at verse 5. Daniel chapter 12, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked. There stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Chapter 12 opens with a description of the end times. Listen to verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, here, one said to the one clothed in linen, how long, how long before the fulfillment of these wonders? How long will this period of great tribulation last? How long will this time of the end be? Verse seven, then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever, he took an oath, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. We know from our study of Daniel, that's a year, two years, and half a year for a total of, math major Josh Dodge, three and a half years. <laughs> three and a half years. And... When the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. 
It's interesting, isn't it? That in God, making a judgment, measuring off his people, marking them off, those who worship in the holy place, his people, those who worship in the naos, those who worship by his spirit, those who have entered there by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and worship there, marked off from those outside. God makes a distinguishing, a distinguishing judgment between them. Those inside are his people. Those outside, trampling the court that has been turned over to the nations. God making a judgment between them, those who will live, those who will die. And that judgment pertaining to those Gentiles in the, in the court that has been trampled underfoot by the, gent- by the nations, that involves not only the trampling of the court, but the trampling of God's people, the persecution of God's people. When the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. We'll talk about more. We'll talk more about what that means, particularly in, in the weeks ahead here. That's interpreted for us in part in Luke chapter 21. Turn there with me to Luke chapter 21, the Lord's Olivet Discourse. We see this referenced again, this prophecy in Luke chapter 21, beginning there in verse 20. And again, this is typological language. This this is language that is used particularly of the events that took place in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple raised to the ground. But this language is typological of the end. Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babes in those days. For there will be great distress, great tribulation in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem the holy city, will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We serve the Lord, brothers and sisters. We worship in his temple during the times of the Gentiles. These are the times in which we now live. These are the times in which the Gentiles trample the outer courts of the holy city, as it were, underfoot. And they do so for a period that's referenced here as 42 months. It's interesting. 42 months is the, the time period given. That period, 42 months, is, is, a symp- is a symbolic time period representative of our own age. When we get to the book of Revelation, we're talking about apocalyptic literature. All these things are symbolic. And they're symbolic. These are symbolic connectives or symbolic tissue, all right, that sinews arteries that run into the Old Testament. These are connected with Old Testament prophecies. So when Daniel, for example, is given his prophecy that we know well from Daniel chapter 9, and 70 weeks are determined to bring an end of all of this, to bring an end of transgression, to usher in glory. 70 weeks are determined. 69 of those weeks have passed, and we're dealing with Daniel's 70th week There are events that take place in the first half of Daniel's 70th week, and there are events that take place in the second half of Daniel's 70th week. And this reference to 42 months, that reference corresponding to times 
or time, times and half a time, 42 months, 1260 days. Those times all referencing this period, this first half, if you will, of Daniel's 70th week. What the Lord is saying with that symbolic language is that this time period, this time period of tribulation, this time period in which the, the outer courts are being trampled by the nations, this refers to that. This is what Daniel the prophet said. This is a time period that Daniel the prophet referenced. So we discussed before in Revelation chapter 12, the example points back to the prophecy of Daniel. And like other texts, it interprets our times, the time of the Gentiles, as the first half of Daniel's 70th week, times, times, and half a time, 42 months. The Lord's Olivet Discourse, Luke 21, Matthew 24, for example, uses that typological language. It's language that refers there specifically to the events of AD 70 when Jerusalem was invaded. Language that is typological of the events that comprise the end of this age. It's those typological events. They are typological. They are a pattern, if you will, of the events that take place during the church age, during our time, the trampling of the outer courts by the nations. And the nations, in that trampling, the nations persecute the Lord's church. And we know from the, the Lord's Olivet Discourse that there is greater tribulation coming. We are, we are being pressed, as it were, by that progressive parallelism. We're being pressed against the end of the age, where there is, as birth pains upon a pregnant woman, there is increasing frequency and increasing severity. There's an increasing intensity to the tribulation, to the persecutions that the church will face. Until, in the prophecy of Daniel, the power of the holy people is completely shattered. In the prophecy that we see here in Revelation 11, until God's people, as it were, lie dead in the street. Until the power of the holy people is shattered. Until there is a great persecution upon the church. The Lord says in Matthew chapter 24, in the Olivet Discourse, understand what the prophet Daniel says, but when you see, when you see the abomination of desolation, there will at that time, immediately after those events, there will be a tribulation a period of great tribulation, such as never been before, no, nor will ever be again. A tribulation like any other. It's at the end of that tribulation, that period of great tribulation, that you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Brothers and sisters, we're charged to overcome. We're charged to endure. We're charged to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all these things. We're to look to him in faith, and we are to overcome. We are his worshipers. If you are not, you need to get into the temple. <laughs> you need to get into the temple of God. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. What is that period of time a reference to? It's the same period of time, 42 months that the Gentiles are trampling the outer court. It's the same period of time referenced in the prophet Daniel. Time, times, and half a time. It refers to the first half of Daniel's 70th week. It refers to this time period in which we live, that time period between the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming. It refers to that time spanned by each of these literary cycles given to us in the book of Revelation for the encouragement of the church. And we'll look at that together more 
next time. Brothers and sisters, we're to take encouragement by the fact that the Lord has warned us of these things ahead of time. He has written history. All things come to pass exactly as he has decreed them. And his people, he will preserve. You have his name, as it were, graven graven upon your forehead, his seal upon your forehead. He protects his own. He has measured you off. And he has measured you off for life in his son. Measure you off for glory in union with his son. We, brothers and sisters, must be faithful as witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ in this dark age, in this period in which we now live. We are to shine as lights in a dark place for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must persevere. We must put our faith and trust. As things get difficult, difficult as we face adversity, we're to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and endure to the end. He who overcomes, the Lord says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his. Do you see? Pray with me. Father in heaven, help us to endure. Help us to persevere. Strengthen us. Preserve us. We thank you that it is not left to our, we are not left to ourselves to preserve ourselves, to persevere in our own strength. We praise you and we thank you that you are the one who preserves us. Help us to face times of difficulty. Help us to face times of adversity with great faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to face those difficult times knowing that you are bringing to a consummated end all that you have decreed and all that you have decreed is glorious. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on eternal and unseen things in the heavens. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on the horizon as it were for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and help us in the words of Peter to hasten the coming of our Lord. Help us to, in the words of Paul, to look for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, to be faithful to the end. We love you. We thank you for how this encourages your people. Um, help us during these times of difficulty to be a faithful witness for you. And as those times of difficulty increase in frequency and increase in severity, increase in, in intensity, pray that you find us faithful to the end by the power of your spirit and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.